Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast, examining authoritarian resurgence and democratic resilience in an era of globalization. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies, the Idea Center of the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm your host, Shanti Kalethal, Senior Director of NED's International Forum. And I'm your co-host, Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the Endowment, recording from our studio in Washington, D.C. In regions around the world, analysis has focused attention on the ways in which capital flows stemming from authoritarian regimes can erode transparent, accountable, and fair market functioning, a phenomenon that the Center for International Private Enterprise has referred to as corrosive capital. Concerns have arisen about the efficacy and impact of loans and investments related to China's Belt and Road Initiative, for example. Yet such investments are not only about the money. Related political activity accompanying such capital can lead to elite capture and other channels for authoritarian influence that can prove damaging to independent institutions. A growing body of evidence suggests that such investments should be scrutinized more specifically with an eye to understanding their impact on democratic norms and behavior, an area that frequently goes under the radar. China's economic and business activity has come into sharper focus in the Czech Republic and elsewhere in Europe particularly among the countries of China's 17 plus 1 initiative. To explain the ways in which the nature of China's governance system at home may shape its approach beyond its borders, we're pleased to welcome to the Power 3.0 podcast Martin Halle, the director of the Prague-based organization Synopsis, to help us better understand the influence of China's corrosive capital. Welcome, Martin. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, Martin, you've lived and worked in China and are an expert on how the Chinese Communist Party functions, and now you're back in your hometown of Prague. So you were perhaps the perfect observer for what unfolded in recent years in the Czech Republic. Can you tell us a bit about this curious case of China and the Czech Republic and this issue that we're talking about today? And why does this matter? Why should democracies pay attention to this? Well, uh, the Czech Republic turned its uh, China policy around in uh, 2014 rather abruptly. Uh, This has happened for a number of reasons, um, not least because of um, uh, very specific uh, commercial interests. Uh, Czech companies, or rather one one big Czech company that was interested in obtaining licenses in the People's Republic of China, and because of the impact and influence this company has on the Czech politics has been having on the Czech politics since uh, a long time. Uh, it ultimately led to an adjustment, a turn, uh, really just a U-turn in the Czech policy towards the People's Republic of China. Uh, the what happened next is uh, quite interesting because uh, on the Chinese side, a Chinese company called CEFC sort of answered the call and came to the Czech Republic to become what was then hailed as the the flagship of Chinese investment in the Czech Republic. The company operated in the Czech Republic for uh, over two years. It uh, gained a huge uh, political influence, mostly through specific individuals, many of whom ended up on the payroll of the company. And then it collapsed uh, very suddenly. Um, It also got accused of uh, international political corruption in the United States. And its chairman, who in the meantime has been named, uh, had been named uh, a special advisor to the Czech President Zeman, was disappeared in 
China. So it's a, it's a very strange story, quite complicated, and uh, I think very instructive to a lot of other, other countries because it clearly demonstrates a lot of things that can go wrong in, uh, in, in a mutual relationship. I think there might be a perception, if you're not familiar with everything and you only heard the basic outlines of what happened in the Czech Republic, you might assume that the Czech Republic has a robust economic relationship with China. Um, can you explain a little bit more about this and whether the, the types of political capture you're describing were dependent on the economic relationship? The economic relationship with the People's Republic of China is uh, uh, relatively small in terms of both investment and trade. Uh, there hasn't been much investment coming from the People's Republic um, as a result of this policy change in the Czech Republic in 2014. Uh, as an investor, uh, China is somewhere at the bottom of the second ten uh, among uh, uh, the countries of the world. The Trade has risen somewhat, but it's still low in absolute terms, and it's also very imbalanced. Uh, the, 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 the ratio of the trade imbalance most years is about 1 to 10 in the disadvantage of the, of the Czech Republic. So the, the economic relationship is actually uh, sort of minuscule. The, the political impact of the policy changes in the Czech Republic in 2014 far outweighed uh, the, the, the economic uh, impact. But why is there that imbalance then? I think there would be an assumption that the greater the economic interdependence, the greater the political leverage. That's what uh, one would assume, but in reality, that's not how it happened. So, um, as I mentioned before, this company that came to the Czech Republic in 2015 called CEFC was supposed to bring billions of dollars in investment. Uh, the, uh, the expected uh, inflow of Chinese capital and even specific projects were even advertised on the web page of the presidential office in Prague. But uh, almost none of that happened. So uh, most of these projects ended at the level of MOUs. And then uh, the, the deliverables um, actually never really materialized. So it was more an expectation rather than an actual fact. And in the end, as I, as I said, uh, as an investor, China is like uh, towards the bottom of um, investors in the Czech Republic. And Martin, it seems as though uh, China's investment, not only in Central Europe and places like the Czech Republic, often uh, comes with a good deal of fanfare when it um, when engagement begins. Um, can you just give a sense of how we should think about this in terms of um, the full range of engagement uh, beyond the economics and what, for say, open societies, the the potential costs can be when there's full engagement with um, capital flowing from a, from a large authoritarian country. The, uh, the rebalancing, as it were, of the Czech-China relationship in 2014 was uh, advertised and presented to the Czech public as a form of economic diplomacy. Um, uh, diplomacy uh, aimed to secure um, investment, trade, and opportunities, business opportunities for the Czech Republic uh, on the large uh, Chinese market. So uh, there was this whole rhetoric, this whole narrative of um, economic potential. And uh, there was basically 
no talk of uh, the political dimensions of the relationship, uh, uh, probably because uh, uh, the Czech public, um, you know, having lived through uh, 40 years of communist rule, is rather sensitive to um, issues of, um, um, you know, one one party one party arrangement uh, that exists in, in the People's Republic. So the economic aspect was uh, overemphasized, and the political aspect was never mentioned at all. But uh, like I said, in the end, uh, the, the, the political aspect uh, ended up to be really the only th outcome of the whole relationship with the, with the economic aspect being minuscule. And, and have you seen in the wider regional context, for example, in uh, the 16 plus one, now 17 plus one context, where China has a, a relationship with a whole host of countries um, from northeastern Europe all the way down through southeastern Europe, that this is uh, reflected across those countries in some fashion? This seems to be the case in most of these countries, uh, with some possible exceptions, uh, one of them being Montenegro, where the Chinese investment is quite significant, but that's uh, mostly because Montenegro, to begin with, is a relatively small economy. So one large project can sort of skip the, the, the whole statistics. So outside, uh, outside of Montenegro, even in the uh, West Balkan countries where the Chinese presence is probably stronger than in the rest of the 16 plus one countries, the economic impact still has been very, very low. But the perceptions of it in all of these countries um, are very high. So according to public opinion polls in many of these countries, people do think that China is the number one or maybe number two investor. But when you look at the numbers, at the statistical numbers, uh, this, uh, this perception is just not borne out. And given the fact that the engagement in some of the countries you just alluded to is in, in terms of time, rather short, all things considered. What explains this um, misperception or distortion in perception that you've just um, alluded to? Well, I think uh, the, uh, the whole economic engagement uh, uh, was in most cases really just a cover for uh, political intent, uh, certainly from the side of the People's, People's Republic of China. So from the very beginning, the, the investment was overemphasized, hyped up even, and that was often done with the help of um, local uh, interlocutors, uh, of um, people on the ground who uh, very often uh, we could probably categorize as being captured, uh, including some uh, public officials, uh, officials and, um, and uh, civil servants and politicians uh, who were sort of interested in hyping up, hyping up the, the whole economic dimension of the relationship so they would not have to discuss the political aspect of it. It was meant as a justification of the engagement with the People's Republic. It would be difficult in Eastern Europe, given the past, to say that we're engaging with the People's Republic of China because we, uh, you know, because we, have, we share some common uh, values or ideals. It's, of course, much easier to say we're engaging with the People's Republic of China because there's economic potential, potential for economic benefit in the relationship. Let's flip the lens a little bit, and maybe I'll ask you to put on your China analyst hat for a second. You've taken 
you've, you've made a lot of effort to try to explain the workings of the Chinese Communist Party to non-expert audiences, and in particular to explain the parts of the party that try to reach out to and create these narratives on the ground and essentially create a fertile environment for the types of political capture that you're talking about. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, these functions of the party, maybe address the role of um, parts of the party like the United Front or the International Liaison Department, both of which I think have been active in the Czech Republic. And again, why does this all matter? This all seems like kind of obscure nomenclature. Well, the uh, the uh, political outreach, so to speak, uh, from the People's Republic of China is mostly done traditionally through the uh, United Front Work Department of the Central Committee of the Ch- uh, Communist Party of China. Um, Externally, this specific department mostly works with um, Chinese communities, with the Chinese diaspora in target countries. But in Eastern Europe, traditionally, these uh, Chinese uh, diaspora communities have been uh, very small. So uh, the traditional role of the United Front Work Department seems to have been taken over by another body, the, the International Liaison Department. Uh, which is uh, uh, one of the four big departments in the Central Committee of the Communist Party, mostly designed to uh, connect with the uh, political elites in other countries. Um, uh, Originally, uh, it was meant to uh, liaison with other communist uh, communist parties, but since uh, the 80s, it would actually work with um, essentially any political elites abroad that would be willing to work with uh, the Communist Party of China. So this uh, international liaison department has been very active in the Czech Republic, which um, um, of course also corresponds with the fact that the relationship has been very top-down. So it's been driven by the, the, the Czech political representation at the highest level, starting with the Czech president. So. Uh, th- this kind of engagement also shows that um, um, you know the relationship is primary, primarily uh, political rather than uh, economic because it's been driven by political organs and that it's also been very top-down. So um, I think that's probably important to keep in mind. It seems as though from those organs of the party that the party is thinking about how to achieve its objectives, not only in authoritarian environments that um, where it may be easier, there's no scrutiny, there's no rule of law, and so on. But actually, it can be very well adapted to democratic environments, that that's not necessarily an impediment. No, not at all. So the, uh, I think the very, the, very no, the very basic idea for the um, United Front work is uh, co-optation. So it's an effort to co-opt uh, non-party elements uh, to be useful for the, the goals of the Communist Party of China both domestically and uh, in in um, recent times uh, increasingly so uh, internationally so uh, uh, it can work uh, essentially in in any environment and uh, in the democratic uh, environment uh, the the net result is essentially a repurposing of the democratic institutions to be useful to the um, aims of the communist party so if you if you co-opt um, representatives of uh, democratic institutions and democratic countries, they can advance your interests without actually changing the uh, the, the, the system or uh, the institutional setup of these uh, uh, target uh, countries. So, Martin, you've just described a rather elaborate way in which um, the Chinese authorities pursue their interests beyond their borders, a country of 1.4 billion people, use the Czech Republic as a 
case study for our discussion. That's a country of roughly 10 million people. Um, the elaborateness of the tools and mechanisms that are used beyond the economic sphere in order to advance Beijing's interests uh, are quite sophisticated. And I think see versions of this from other authoritarian regimes that have reached beyond their borders. But in your view, what um, what are some of the things that uh, open societies need to think about more clearly as they develop responses to defend the integrity of institutions that may be in danger of being co-opted or corrupted or otherwise uh, knocked off their moorings? I think democratic societies in, in general need to um, uh, make more efforts to understand the workings, the inner workings of the uh, Chinese system better and then take certain precautions. And these precautions would be mainly in the area of uh, preventing the conflict of interest in their own societies. Uh, that would um, uh, presumably help to uh, maintain the integrity of the political systems. So the political systems in Western societies are quite vulnerable through individuals. They're meant um, you know, as, uh, as an institutional structure that in itself can be quite robust. But if, if you have um, individuals that are open to co-optation, um, and in some cases even corruption, then that could, of course, impact the integrity of the whole system. And you alluded to the need to raise awareness. I think um, in the current environment where certainly journalism is under such duress and news organizations find themselves beleaguered, uh, the business model for independent journalism is under such stress, uh, and it's such a key element in helping the public understand uh, the depth and the contours of engagement in the subject matter we're discussing now. Uh, what, in the absence of that kind of journalism, uh, what else should we be doing to, to build up awareness and get information into the public in a way that helps um, ordinary citizens and policymakers uh, think these things through and have the sort of information that would allow society to develop appropriate responses? I still believe in in the crucial role of uh, mainstream media, even though uh, mainstream media, as we all know, have been under duress um, and uh, have been experiencing uh, a profound crisis of their economic model. So they have been weakened uh, quite significantly. They have been weakened even more in places like Eastern Europe, where the markets are so much smaller than, for instance, the markets in Anglo-Saxon, in the Anglo-Saxon uh, countries. So I believe we still have to work with um, the mainstream media to reach uh, the public and to um, uh, inform the public discourse. But we need to help the, the, the mainstream media to be able to fulfill, to fulfill, to fulfill their role in, um, in society. Um, you know, in these small markets, with um, uh, media being, being even weaker than uh, in the Anglo-Saxon world, uh, generally, uh, local media in Eastern Europe cannot really afford to keep um, area specialists, for instance, on their staff. So they're really ill-equipped to deal with the challenge uh, of a uh, sophistica sophisticated kind that uh, the People's Republic of China presents. Um, so in this situation, I think one of the things that we can do is to try to uh, have some outside intervention to create like 
production hubs, the kind of which um, uh, we have been trying to uh, create to supply reliable information and analysis for the media in the absence of their sort of in-house uh, resources um, in um, in this sphere. And you're you're alluding to uh, the project Synopsis that you run. Yes, so we're we're, we're a group of um, uh, trained sinologists, specialists who have also been active um, in the Czech media for some time. So we have been trying to combine these two um, backgrounds and um, uh, produce um, uh, materials, texts, and uh, audiovisual materials and um, um, other forms of media inputs for the mainstream media in the Czech Republic um, to sort of make up for the deficit um, that I described before. So, Martin, you know, both you and I have spent time in China, and I think there's clearly a benefit to greater understanding and two-way information flow um, between free societies and closed societies. You know, there's been an assumption in the past that greater engagement and greater two-way information flow between democracies and authoritarian regimes would inevitably help both the citizens in democracies, but especially citizens in authoritarian regimes to have access to ideas and information and so on. But because of that interdependent relationship, we're now seeing that democracies can be negatively impacted by that engagement. So if we think that engagement should continue, how do we think about the conditions under which the engagement takes place? And I think you've alluded to some of those things already, maybe more scrutiny, better understanding of the types of values and standards that the democracies bring to the table. But for instance, you know, in your case, if you look at the example you brought up of the Czech Republic, um, absent sort of saying never engage at all, but are there types of conditions that you would hope be placed upon that, that, that engagement? Yes, uh, I think there has been this assumption that uh, more engagement automatically means better understanding and uh, more meaningful cooperation and, and, and ultimately would be beneficial to, to all. I would argue that uh, it depends on what kind of engagement that is. So uh, I think if the engagement is uneven and skewed, uh, from the beginning, then the the ultimate results of that engagement may not be so positive. So uh, I am all for engaging China more, and uh, definitely into the future there will be more engagement with the People's Republic of China. But we should try to insist that this kind of engagement is uh, as uh, even and reciprocal as possible. It will, of course, never be completely even or not certainly not in, in uh, the, the foreseeable future. But we can, we can try to make sure that at least there is some resemblance of um, equality in the relationship, both in material terms and in terms of the flow of information. Uh, in both of these areas, it, had been, it has been rather one-sided. And I don't think it's been to the benefit of anybody except perhaps the, 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 some of the specialized organs of the Communist Party of China. Given what you've just said about kind of refashioning the standards around engagement, um, what do we do to initiate that? What has to happen, say, what have you seen in the Czech Republic, not necessarily only at the official level, but in society that would help us 
kind of refresh the standards that Shanti was alluding to and be in a better position generally, but also be in a better position to uh, navigate the interaction with authoritarian regimes like the one in Beijing? I think the Czech society and the public discourse in the Czech society has developed quite significantly in the past few years, and uh, it's now much better informed, and it's also much more active. And um, uh, not only the civil society, the media, but now even some of the politicians, some of the political forces, including all political parties, have started to demand that the relationship is more equal and um, have been initiating uh, specific steps in that direction in terms of more transparency, more disclosure, more, in general, more open relationship. And I I think it's exactly this kind of uh, more open relationship, the transparent relationship that would ultimately benefit both uh, China and the Czech Czech Republic in the long term. Before we wrap up our conversation, I'd like to conclude with our final segment called What We're Reading, where we discuss what's at the top of our respective reading lists and might recommend to our listeners. So, Martin, would you like to start us off? Well, uh, I I just finished on the plane here a a fascinating book by John Carlin um, titled uh, uh, The Dawn of the Cold War. Uh, and it's about, it's basically uh, an overview of the development of um, uh, the, the contestation in cyberspace uh, and the development of challenges that uh, the democratic world is facing in the cyberspace from uh, various actors like uh, uh, the People's Republic Russia. Uh, Iran and uh, North Korea and it's uh, it's it's a very down-to-earth um, account of um, uh, the development of specific uh, policies in the United States to cope with these challenges and also a very good um, description of how these challenges develop themselves. And I'm reading uh, Peter Pomerantsev's new book which is titled This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality and this is Peter's second book following um, his well-received book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. Among other things, uh, Pomerantsev uses his own family's experience in the former Soviet Union and how they dealt with repression and censorship and the information environment there as a way of explaining um, today's challenges and uses a number of case studies from around the world, including places like Syria and Ukraine and the Philippines, to demonstrate just how... um, upside down the world has been turned in large measure by virtue of the dramatic changes to the media and information environment. Um, it's, a, it's a really creative and insightful way of explaining to audiences the challenges that we're all going to be dealing with for quite some time to come. And uh, I'm reading a book focused on issues that are, I would say, adjacent to those we've discussed today. The book's called The Despot's Guide to Wealth Management by J.C. Sharman. And it focuses on what he calls the surprising campaign against transnational kleptocracy, which came about as a result of a broader set of questions asking, and I'll paraphrase, why certain practices or institutions that are at one time almost universally accepted as being part of the natural order of things later come to be seen as a problem to be solved. 
So he dedicates a section of this book to the troubling case of Chinese illicit capital flows into Australia, and he highlights a key conundrum for democratic governments, which is that in order to cooperate with the PRC on transnational anti-corruption efforts, they have to deal with the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection, which is actually an arm of the party. So in my view, this is quite problematic given that the lack of rule of law, independent judiciary or media and rights guarantees, and most significantly, the fact that the party sits beyond any real external accountability um, actually prevents the anti-corruption mission from perhaps fulfilling, being able to be fulfilled in the first place. And it raises a number of troubling issues, which I think are only likely to grow in significance in the coming years. So I think it's, a, it's an issue to watch. So I'm going to take this opportunity to thank Martin Halla again for joining us today. Thank you for having me, and I was very happy to be here. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on the topic we discussed today, we recommend reading Martin Halla's article in the April 2018 issue of the Journal of Democracy entitled Forging a New Eastern Bloc. You can also access more of his work at the website Synopsis. For further analysis of the themes we discussed today and will be examining in future podcast episodes, visit our blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. We also invite you to join the conversation with us on Twitter and Facebook, where you can find us using the handle at ThinkDemocracy. Additional resources are available on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast app you use. Thank you to our podcast production team at the International Forum, producer Jessica Ludwig and our editing and sound engineer Rochelle Faust, with a special assist today from producer Melissa Aiton. I'm Chris Walker with Shanti Kalifo and Martin Halla. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on contextualizing China's corrosive capital and invite you to tune in again for future Power 3.0 podcasts.